You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. Well, I get to continue in our series in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And today I've titled this sermon, Grace Gives. Now, as we look at this passage, growing up, some of the coolest people that I, that I knew were my great aunt and uncle, Jim and Faye. Jim and Faye, when I was younger, they uh, were recently retired and they had no grandkids at that time. And so they spent the early part of their retirement traveling the world. And for a young man from a small town with more cows than people, some of the places they went and things they saw were incredible to me. You know, there were these fun trips to where they would go to Africa. There's pictures of them on safaris with, with elephants and rhinos. They would go to Australia. There's a great picture of my aunt and uncle with a kangaroo of all things. You know, they would do travels in Europe and these cruises. They lived in the Napa Valley in California. Like they, for a small town kid, they just seemed like the coolest people. And frankly, they really were. And when they would go on these trips, they would come by where my grandparents lived in our town, and they would stop in to share their lives with us. They would share these stories and these gifts that they had picked up. And I love seeing them because, yes, you get to hear these incredible stories and see my Uncle Jim with a kangaroo and all these great things. But they would also bring gifts. And, yes, some of them were knickknacks and just fun things, but I loved getting these gifts of stories and of toys. Now, I rejoice in that because I'm a little selfish and I like to get gifts. That even today, I still ask Kelly when she comes home from the grocery store, did you bring me anything? And if the answer is no, even though I don't need anything, I'm disappointed. You too like to receive gifts. If I were to ask you, you enjoy receiving things that maybe you're not as selfish as I was, but you love getting gifts. Why? Why do we enjoy receiving gifts? Well, I think it's because that we like to get gifts because it makes us feel special. It makes us feel treasured. It makes us feel important. And as we receive these gifts, we're reminded that someone looks upon us and thinks we're valuable. Someone thinks we're important, that we're significant enough for them to spend time with us or to purchase us something. Now, it may sound a little funny, but this desire to be valued, to be treasured, this is a part of how God wired us. You see, God wired us this way so that we would ultimately know our worth that we would know our value. That when God looks upon us, he finds us to be valuable people. When we look at one another, we find value in one another. And ultimately, as God did this, he looked upon us and he found value in our lives to be significant, to ultimately be equal to the life of his son, Jesus. If you've read through the scriptures or been around the church for a time, you have heard the story of Jesus coming to live a perfect life, coming as a sinless Savior, coming as a man who would bear the wrath of sin and shame from God. Why? So that he might take our place upon the cross and that we could experience this free gift of grace from Jesus, from God. God did this so that we could become his children, 
He did this so that we could receive this gift of grace should we trust in him. And today, it is that gift of grace that we're going to talk about and study. Now, if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, if you've got one of those scripture journals, you can find them right up here to my right if you don't have one. But if you're taking notes, I want you to go ahead and write down our bottom line for today. And that is that grace is a gift that continues to give. Grace is a gift that continues to give. What does grace give to us? Well, first, grace gives new life to us. Grace gives new life to us. That's our first point. I want you to look with me, beginning at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As Paul begins to write this section, he's writing about this gift of grace that has given new life to us. And as he's writing this letter, as you perhaps heard last week from Pastor Brian, he's writing this letter to Timothy to give him some encouragement. You see, Timothy is going through some challenges in the church in Ephesus. There's some false teaching that's been occurring, and there's been some challenges to the leadership of the church, and Paul is writing to him to offer some encouragement and to let him know that this will be okay. As they're experiencing some of these challenges, he's writing to him and he's sharing his story of the grace of God in his life. Paul begins writing this letter by ultimately thanking God for giving him strength and appointing him to his service. You see, Paul's rejoicing in his calling from God because he knows that this calling, this is one of the gifts, one of the gifts of grace that God has given freely to him. You see, Paul celebrates the fact that he is going to spend the rest of his life telling people about this amazing grace that he's found. Isn't that an incredible thing? That he'll spend his life proclaiming about his Savior. Paul recognizes that he didn't do anything to deserve this. This is a, a gift. He references this when he says that he was a, a blasphemer, he was a persecutor, he was an opponent of God. He is frankly about the last guy that you would expect to be rejoicing over the Christian faith. This might be a little confusing to you because we're talking about Paul. He's the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. But let's remember who Paul was before he became a believer. Because Paul's got a past that is full of brokenness and sin. You see, when we first meet Paul back in the book of Acts, Paul enters the story as an enemy of God. 
When we encounter Paul, he is leading people to persecute the church. He is leading people to even begin killing Christians. In fact, he leads the riot that kills Stephen, the first recorded Christian killed for their faith in Acts 7. And not only does he lead this riot, he then rejoices over it and receives honor from the people who are a part of it. He chases Christians across Israel seeking to kill them if they wouldn't turn from God. He's described as ravaging the church in the book of Acts. He's evil and he's unrighteous. He is an enemy of the faith. This is why Paul says that he's a blasphemer, that he's a persecutor, he's an opponent of God. He was as far as you could get because he was actively an enemy of God. Yet even his evil and unrighteousness could not continue when he encounters Jesus. You see, in Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, as he's going to persecute Christians yet again, he encounters Jesus. And on that road, that dusty road, Jesus changes his life forever. He becomes a Christ follower. And he spends the rest of his days leading people to trust in Jesus along the way. It's incredible when you look at Paul's life because he frankly was the biggest enemy you could find of the Christian church. And he goes from being that enemy to being a man who writes most of the New Testament. I mean, that sounds insane, doesn't it? And if we didn't have historical evidence that this was true, that Paul was who he said he was, you might doubt these words. But I would encourage you to not doubt these words, stepping back from the historical reliability of the Scriptures. There's something I want us to understand from here that I believe Paul's pointing to you for, for Timothy, for us. I hope that you can see from this passage, from what we've explored already, that you are never too far from the grace of God for it to change you. You're never too far from the grace of God. Paul, who we would describe as a hero of the faith today, a true hero of the faith, he was once a murderer and a blasphemer. Now, I don't know what you think of those two words, murderer and blasphemer, but I assure you, you don't think anything positive of those words. Despite this, God was willing to offer grace to him and to save him. And so I say, as we look at this idea of grace, this gift of grace, that if Jesus can radically change this murderer into a hero, what is he going to do in our lives? Jesus can transform an enemy of the church, a murderer, a blasphemer, into a hero. What is he going to do in our lives? Now, as Paul's writing this, he recognizes that Timothy needs some encouragement and some help. This is why he starts with this reminder of the grace of God, of what it can do in people's lives. That there's nowhere you're going to go in your life that is too far from the grace of God. And he knows that Timothy needs a reminder in this time, not about leadership advice, 
He doesn't need five tips to a healthy church. He doesn't need any of those things. No, what he needs is a reminder of the power of the gospel. See, in these words, Paul's proclaiming that the grace of God is overflowing in his life, changing him forever. As if this is not enough, this was always the plan of Jesus. This was always the plan that Jesus Christ would come. He would live a perfect life that you and I could not. He would bear the wrath of God upon himself. Why? So that he could save sinners. If they would trust in him, they will experience salvation. Now, you may hear that and you think, that sounds good, but surely other religions have some thoughts about how to be saved. And you're right. Other religions do have thoughts to be about being saved. <coughs> Yet in this, Christianity is the only religion in the world that is for bad people. Christianity is the only religion in the world that is for bad people. If you look at any other religion in the world, every other religion, it says that somehow, some way, you can be good enough to get to heaven. Somehow, you'll figure it out. The weight and the pressure's on you to do it, but somehow, some way, there is a way for you to work yourself into salvation. On the other hand, Christianity says you are broken, you are unworthy, you're undeserving, and guess what? You are accepted anyway. You're not a work in progress. You don't need to figure anything out. You need to come to Jesus and it will be okay. Every other religion is about the work you have to do to get to heaven. In Christianity, the work has been done for you. You merely need to look upon Jesus and cry out to him. Christianity says that the gospel is available for all who would call upon the name of Jesus to be saved. You see, this gospel message is one of hope, of rest, that must be personally accepted by people who have heard it. This is why Paul's reminding Timothy of this. He's reminding him of these words because he wants him to keep the main things the main things. He's reminding him of this because Paul and Timothy and anyone else you meet who's in ministry, they're in ministry because of a calling from God, but more importantly, they're in ministry because they want to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus. I'll tell you that Pastor Brian and myself, we, we are no different than Paul and Timothy. We aspire for two things in our lives, two things in our lives and ministries to be done. One, we want to make much of Jesus. And whatever we do, we want him to be honored and glorified. We want people to look at the work we do and not go anything good about us, but to go how incredible Jesus is. And secondly, we want to see heaven crowded with redeemed sinners. We want to see heaven crowded with people who have come to faith through the work of God through our lives. So that there is a long list of people who have been redeemed by the grace of God. And we get to be a part of that story. This is why Paul and Timothy have devoted their lives towards this. This is why so many others have devoted their lives toward this work. The goal of the church, the people of God, is to ultimately proclaim and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus. 
But the end goal is to see heaven crowded with redeemed people. To see every street, every open field filled with people who have trusted in Jesus. I think this is a crucial reminder for us as people, not just to pastors or leaders. You see, our calling in life, when we begin to follow Jesus, our calling stops being that we're going to live until retirement and have a great time. Our calling stops being that we're going to work and work and work to provide. Our calling stops being good parents or great-grandparents or whatever you might insert in there. Our calling is not to just live as the things of Christ are empty. Our calling is not to live as if we've got to get out of hell free card and things are okay. No, our calling is to live to live as if we are operating a rescue mission for people who are far from the grace of God. This means that we're to wake up every day rejoicing that we see another day and praying that we might use it to tell of the grace of God. We've been called to this mission to become ambassadors for Christ so that people might see, hear, and respond to the name of King Jesus. This is the calling that Timothy and Paul experienced before they even felt a call to ministry. It was a calling to follow Christ and make much of his name. This is the same calling that you and I have experienced when we trusted in Jesus. This is the calling that he has put upon our life to make much of his name and tell people about what he's done for us. Paul writes these words and He concludes this section with a little bit more encouragement. It's an encouragement that Jesus is going to display his perfect heavenly patience to his people. Paul's been shown undeserved patience by Jesus. You see, he was steadfast to love Paul even when he was unlovable. No other religion in the world would offer love to a man like Paul. No other religion would offer love and grace to a man like Paul. But Jesus didn't even hesitate to do so. As we think about this love, I want to point to kind of two different people who may be listening or are present today. And for the first group, if if you're here and you don't trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I, I would just simply ask, why not? Why not? I mean, what are you waiting for? Are you hoping for a better sermon? Are you hoping for more evidence, a better worship time? Like, what is it that you're looking for that you need to hear to trust in Jesus? Because I will tell you this, Jesus loves you where you are. But he loves you too much to keep you where you are. If Jesus can radically change the life of a murderer to turn him into a hero, what can he do in your life? For my other group that is here, my Christ followers, do you celebrate and rejoice over this patience that has been offered to you? Are you grateful that God puts up with you, your brokenness and mistakes, and all, and freely gives His grace and mercy to you. 
Because as Paul writes these words, he is so moved by the grace of God that in verse 17, he breaks out in the song. He begins writing a brief hymn right there, celebrating the grace of God. Paul, despite the fact that he's been a believer for a number of years at this point, he's never lost sight of the patience that God showed him. That leads him to rejoice and worship because he knows he's only sustained by God's continued patience with him. You see, we are not anchored to Christ, to God by our faith. Because if it were left to our faith, our faith isn't strong enough to keep us here. If we can be honest with one another, we recognize the truth that our faith sometimes is frail and weak. And so it is not our faith that keeps us here, but rather the one who is faithful for us that keeps us here, and his name is Jesus. Because though our faith may wax and wane as the moon does, Jesus' faithfulness never changes. Jesus' faithfulness is rock solid. It is eternal. It is never failing, never wavering. It is forever perfect to obey the Father. And we're held not by our faith, but by the infinite faithfulness and patience that Jesus, that the Father shows to his people. Do not lose sight of God's grace, brothers and sisters. Do not lose sight of his patience with us, holding us, holding us tightly to himself. Timothy is hearing these words, and as Paul's writing them, he's got a point to this. He's not just reminding us that grace gives new life to us, but he's also showing us that grace gives direction to our lives. Look with me at verses 18 through 20. Verse 18 reads, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding, fat, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Grace gives direction to our lives. This section really only makes sense if we look at chapter 1 as a whole. Remember, as we look at the Bible, we have added uh, chapters and verse numbers in there to make it easier to read. That's one whole chapter right here we're looking at. And verses 1 through 11 that Pastor Brian preached on last week, those verses describe the work of the false teachers in the church of Ephesus. Paul's describing some of the sins and heresies they've fallen into. And he's walking through that. And in the next few verses, 12 through 17, it's describing the work of the apostles, the work of Paul, the testimony of grace, the true gospel that Paul has proclaimed to the church in Ephesus. And then finally, in 18 through 20, it's essentially him in this letter looking upon Timothy and saying, you've heard the false teachings. You've heard the true gospel. 
Now choose which one you will follow. And here are the consequences for either path. Paul tells Timothy in verse 18 that he's to fight the good warfare or fight. You see, this fight that Timothy is supposed to experience and he's supposed to go through is to protect his heart and ministry from anything that might steal them. His defense and his task is the gospel of Jesus and the grace that it offers. You see, Timothy must protect his heart by the gospel and its grace. It's not just Timothy that has to do this, but this is the work that you and I must go through. Because we know the truth that when the world says, follow your heart, they mean go get in trouble. When the world says, just feel what you're feeling, they mean go raise a ruckus and be a moron. And the the truth is that if we're left to our own devices, we are going to get into trouble. Merely look at our children, right? You know that when you're raising your children, that if they were alone in a room by themselves and it was quiet, danger was afoot. That's when things are at their deadliest, when they are sneaking around doing Lord knows what in their rooms. The truth is we can't be left alone and expect to come out on the other side okay. Paul is telling Timothy, protect your heart with the gospel. Protect your heart with the gospel. Focus on the important things because if you do not, if you give in to this false teaching, if you give in to this heresy, if you allow that to take a foothold in your life, this sinful teaching, you'll make a shipwreck of your life. You'll destroy it. It will fall apart around you. I can't help but think that if Paul could see a car today and see us drive that he might find that an appropriate illustration. You know, if you're driving a car and as you're driving along, what are you doing to safely get to your destination? You're paying attention to your surroundings, right? You're keeping it between those lines on the road, right? You're staying between them because if you go off or on the other side, you're in danger. You're not just paying attention to what's in front of you, but you're looking behind you, looking around you. You're paying attention to what other drivers are doing. You're observing things so that you keep this task of importance that you get there safely on track. Now, what happens if you're driving and you're not paying attention? It doesn't tend to end well, does it? You bend down to get something off the floorboard and you go careening off the road. If you don't keep it between those lines, dangerous things come up. It's like those trees pop out in front of you. If you're not watching what other people are doing around you, you are probably going to get in an accident because the reality is that nobody, you rarely find people of intelligence behind the wheel of a car, right? That includes us. It's a challenge. And so you know that you have to be on your, your best behavior. You've got to pay attention. You've got to keep it between the lines. You've got to watch what other people are doing. Why? So that you can get to your destination safely. This is what Paul is telling Timothy. Timothy, you know what your destination is. You want to get to that heavenly place. 
And if you want to get to that heavenly place, then you've got to allow the gospel to keep it between the lines. You've got to allow the gospel to sharpen your gaze and attention so that you can see the things that might wreck your life and that you can stay away from them. You've got to use your eyes, your mind, and your heart and let that guide you through the work of the gospel. Because if you don't, if you don't use the gospel to guide you, you will make a wreck of your life. And so, Christians, Christ followers, is your gaze set on heaven? Is that your destination? Is that where you want to be? Because if it is, the thing that must guide you and direct you is the gospel. It is not your preferences about theology. It is not your preferences about music. It is not your preferences about anything on this earth. The thing that guides you and directs you is the gospel so that you might get to the heavenly places. Paul didn't have a car to look upon as he offered this encouragement, but he did have something he could look upon to describe because he describes a shipwreck. And he references these two men, Alexander and Hymenaeus, and he says they've wrecked their lives by turning away from the gospel and they've chosen their own preferences over God's. We don't know much about Alexander and Hymenaeus. Uh, They're only referenced one other time in the Bible, both in this book, and 2 Timothy as well. We don't really know anything about them. Maybe they're other ministers of the gospel. Maybe they're leaders. Maybe they're just people who have lost their mind in the church at Ephesus. But whatever it is they've done, Paul says they have moved into heresy. They have moved away from the things of God. They're chasing their preferences and desires. Their target is no longer heaven, but self-satisfaction. He says they rejected grace and they have chosen a shipwreck. I don't know if you've ever seen a shipwreck. Uh, I've not experienced that, but seeing a boat sink, a shipwreck, is essentially, from what I've studied, is a sure and slow way to die. Think about a ship, and if there's a hole, hole in the hole of the ship, it doesn't just immediately sink. Water enters in, and it must fill compartment by compartment, pushing the air out and filling it with water. It can take hours, even days, for a ship to fully sink. And if you're on board that ship, you are going to die. There's no question about that. If you stay on that ship, you will die. A shipwreck in Paul's time is a sure and slow way to die. And Alexander and Hymenaeus... And anyone else who chooses their preferences over God's design and plan, they are going to condemn themselves to a slow and sure death unless they throw themselves to the free gift of grace given to them by God. If you're on a sinking ship and you know it's going down, the only hope you have The only hope you have of rescue, of life continuing, is to get off the ship. And it's not enough to get off the ship because you've got to get away from the ship because when it goes down, it pulls everything around it down with it. 
And so if you are on a sinking ship, you must get off the ship and you must get away from it. What Paul is telling Timothy, Alexander and Hymenaeus, what he's telling us is that if we want to get off the sinking ship, we must not only turn away from our preferences, but we must remove ourselves from them. We must submit fully to the grace of God and the gospel to find life and hope. This takes us back to our bottom line, that grace is a gift that continues to give. Because it truly does. It gives us life. It gives us direction. And it gives us hope here. When we find ourselves out of sort, and we've taken our gaze off of heaven, and we begin to look upon our preferences, and we, the boat begins to sink, it is our life preserver in the midst of a sinking ship. And so today, brothers and sisters, I don't know where you are in your battle with preferences, your focus on things of this world, where you're at in your spiritual journey, but what I do know is no matter where you're at in your journey with Christ, what you need is not another self-help message. What you need is not another get-out-of-hell-free sermon, but what you need is the grace of God. What you need is to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, to rest in His work, and to trust that He has paid the price for you and I, if we trust in Him, to be forgiven and to have life eternal with Him. And so today, wherever you are, I want to call you to trust in this gift of grace. I want to call you to trust in the gospel of Jesus and to receive this gift that continues to give through this life into the next. If you're here and perhaps the Lord is working in your heart and you want to speak to someone, I would love to talk to you about what the Lord is doing in your life. You can speak to Pastor Brian as well. But I would love to hear what God is doing to transform your life for your good and His glory. If I may, I'd like to pray for us as our worship team continues to lead us in worship to respond to God's grace. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we are grateful for you. We're thankful for your love and your work in our lives. And we're grateful for the fact that you give us the gospel to give us life, but to direct us in this life. Lord, it is our prayer that as we look upon your grace and mercy, that we would allow the gospel to guide us fully and completely. We would let it transform our hearts and minds, that we would let it direct us, that everything we have is focused in on the gospel of Jesus. Lord, as you work that out in our hearts and minds, may we turn our eyes to heaven. May we set our gaze on the target, the destination, so that we might receive not only this gift of grace, but that we might get to this place, having fulfilled the calling you gave us to make much of you and to fill heaven with redeemed people. Lord, for those that are here, I don't 
pretend to know everyone's spiritual journey, but wherever we are with you, Lord, what we all need, every one of us, is to look upon you, to call out to you for this gift of grace, and to rest again in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So Lord, today, would you work in our hearts and minds so that we might rejoice in your name and celebrate you for all that you've done. Lord, thank you for your love and for your faithfulness to your people. We pray these things in your name.